a long chain of people who have said to God, by God's grace, I give myself away. I give myself away. That stretches all the way back to the beginning of time and including Abraham himself. This morning we continue in our series on the patriarchs. And this morning will be the last passage in the life of Abraham. So please turn, if you have a Bible with you, to Genesis chapter 22. And we'll be reading together verses 1 through 8. Genesis 22 verses 1 through 8. Um, It will also be projected on the screen behind me and on various monitors throughout the building. Let's read Genesis 22 verses 1 through 8. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come to you again. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they they went, both of them, together. Let's continue to worship the Lord through song. Once again, the lyrics of these famous African-American preacher, Gardner C. Taylor, who was one of the most famous American preachers in the 20th century. And the story goes that behind his pulpit, he had an inscription, which was a paraphrase of a passage from the Gospels that says, we shall see Jesus. And it was a reminder to himself and to any other preacher who stood behind the pulpit that the people didn't come to hear the preacher speak. The people came out of a deep need to see Jesus, to receive a word from our Lord. So with that reminder, I want to ask you to close your eyes and pray with me as we ask our Lord to speak to us once again. Let's pray. Lord, we shall see Jesus. Father, we want to be able to hear from you, to understand your ways, to become the people that you've called us to be. So God, I ask that you would speak to me, that you would speak to us, that you would use me as your servant. But Lord, would you remind us that these aren't just my words, but these are your words. And that my task, my job is to be your spokesperson, to hear from you, to speak from you, Lord. And we together as your people, as your church, open our arms 
looking to hear from you so that we might become the people that you've called us to be. Lord, help us this morning. Speak to us this morning, I pray. Amen. When I was in middle school and then later in high school, my brother and I knew what kind of clothes we wanted to wear. Basically, if a song from our favorite rapper talked about a particular clothing brand, we needed to figure out how we were going to wear that brand to school the next day. The problem was, despite our rapper taste, we didn't have rapper money. So no matter how much I wanted to wear those clothes, the iceberg sweaters, the Rockaware jumpsuits, the Louis Vuitton wallets, those things were way out of our price range. So instead of looking for the real thing, we looked for the best imitation. Every other Saturday after my brother got paid from his job, we went to the local flea market, searching for the best knockoffs we could find. And we went from vendor to vendor, picking through t-shirts, jeans, and jerseys, being careful only to pick what looked most authentic. We got pretty good at it. As long as nobody at school asked too many questions or looked too closely, our clothes passed for the real thing. A few years ago, when Meredith and I went to China, I decided I was going to do it again. My goal was to find a pair of Jordans that looked like the real thing but cost a fraction of the price. So I looked, going from market to market, hoping I could find someone selling sneakers. And near the end of the trip, right when I had given hope that I would be able to leave the country with my sneakers, a small Chinese man handed me a postcard, a promotion, with all of these sneakers that he was offering. Now, this probably wasn't the wisest thing I've ever done. But I left Meredith in the, in the store on the main street where we were, and I followed this man to where he was leading me. He barely spoke English. I didn't speak any Chinese. But somehow we had communicated together that I was interested in what he was offering. So he gestured to me to walk down this small street to follow him to where he was going. And I did. And after a while, he pointed to this small house down the alley, and he gestured for me to walk in. And I did. <laughs> and to my amazement, I walked into this small room that was well-lit and basically looked like the inside of a footlocker. I mean, there was this well-lit wall with all of these shoes on the wall with, uh, in the same way that you would see at the mall. And so through strange gestures and stern expressions... We were able to communicate what I liked and what I didn't like and the price that I liked and the price that I didn't like. And I got my shoes. I got a pair of Jordans. It felt like a triumph. Like I had succeeded in doing exactly what I had tried to do. But then I got worried. It was as if I was back in middle school and all of a sudden I started worrying, what if people can tell that these are fake? What if as I'm walking down the street wearing my Jordans proudly, someone says, that's not the real thing, man. So as soon as I got home, I took a picture of the shoes and sent the picture to a friend of mine who collected Jordans. And I said to him, listen, how do you tell the difference between real and fake Jordans? And probably guessing what I was really after, he said to me, you know, these pair are pretty good. In fact, the only way that you can tell the difference is to hold them up against the real thing. 
That's the thing about real and fake things. You can't really spot the differences. You can't really notice what is real unless you have a model to go by. Sometimes I wonder whether there is a real difference between my faith and a faith that is imitation. Do we have a model to distinguish between real and fake faith? Our story from Genesis this morning is going to provide for us a model of real faith. It is going to uh, provide for us an image, a paradigm of what it means to be faithful. What it means to actually have authentic faith. And as I was reading this story throughout this week, I found myself asking, is my faith the real thing? Or is it just a counterfeit trying to pass off as the real thing? The question begs for a model. I sometimes look at my Chinese Jordans and I convince myself that they're real. But then I see an actual pair of the model that my shoes are replicating and I realize that there are a lot of differences. I begin to spot those differences. I notice those things which distinguish between the real and the fake. Can we spot the difference between faith that is true and faith that is not? I want to look at this story, this model of faith, and I hope that it will help us to understand what real faith looks like. Genesis chapter 22 is a story about a father, a son, and a sacrifice. If you haven't turned there yet, would you open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22? The book of Genesis chapter 22. You know, it's easy to lose a sense of our place in this narrative. I mean, we've been studying the book of Genesis for quite some time. We started with the first 11 chapters, then took a break, and now we're back in the story of the patriarchs. And there's a sense in which it can become difficult to know where we are. And we have to remember the weight that Abraham and his family is carrying here in this story. If you remember back to the beginning of this series, the series of Genesis, something went wrong in God's wonderful creation. Almost immediately after setting Adam and Eve in the garden, they rejected God's word and brought sin into this world. It was as if God had made this beautiful glass sculpture and had handed it to Adam and Eve, and immediately upon receiving it, they dropped it and it smashed to pieces. Then their children, starting with Cain and down through the line of descendants and generations, would take the pieces that they would find and would smash them even more. See, the story here in Genesis, the story of the patriarchs, is the beginning of God repairing what humanity has broken. It is a story of God working through the very people that keep messing things up in order that we might return to the life that was supposed to be, a blessed life with God. In chapter 12 of our story, we found out that God chose Abraham to begin this work. There, God promised to do it through Abraham's offspring. And for us, it's only been 10 chapters, but for Abraham, almost 30 years passed before God fulfilled his promise and gave he and his wife Isaac. And those 30 years weren't without drama and hardship. You remember this. 
You remember the stories. In those 30 years, Abraham and Sarah did everything they could to bring about God's promise on their own. Abraham lied not once, but twice to various leaders in order to protect himself and to protect Sarah because she was so beautiful. Sarah, feeling that perhaps God helps those who help themselves, developed a plan so that their offspring might come from Hagar, her servant woman. But Hagar's child, Ishmael, would not be the promised one. And a short time after Isaac's birth, Hagar and Ishmael were gone, out into the wilderness, away from Abraham and Sarah, but still under the protection of God. By the time we come to this chapter here, in chapter 22, there is no question remaining. If God was going to bring about his blessing through Abraham's offspring, it was going to have to be through Isaac. I can only imagine the pride that Abraham had whenever he saw his son. I can picture Abraham watching Isaac as he grew. Through the years, I see Abraham doting on Isaac, bringing him wherever he went to work, telling him stories at night about the years he and Sarah waited for Isaac. Stories of God speaking to Abraham, making covenant with him, and promising his blessing on his descendants. Isaac was adored. By his parents. In him, they saw not only themselves, but they saw a picture of God's faithfulness. A picture of what God could do when he set something out and planned it. God was faithful, they saw in Isaac. So that night, when God spoke to Abraham, it must have felt like a punch to the stomach. The first part of verse 1 is for you and I, but Abraham didn't know that this was a test. That night he only heard God's voice. Abraham. And he knew the voice. It was the same voice that first spoke to him when he was still in his father's country. That voice that told him to go to the land that would one day become the land of his descendants. It was the same voice that blessed him time and time again, pointing to a future where Abraham would be the father of a blessed people. So when he heard the voice, the voice of his God, he responded quickly and confidently. I am here. Lord, I am here and I am listening. When you and I hear these words, we know what Abraham did not. This was a test. It was an opportunity for Abraham to work out his faith in God. Declarations of faith can only go so far. To say you believe in God is one thing, but it's an entirely different thing to hold on to that belief when moments of trouble and bad news threaten to sway your faith. God tested Abraham so that he might have an opportunity to demonstrate his trust in God. Then Abraham was told this by God. Take your son, your precious son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains for which I tell you. These lines are only recorded once in our Bibles, and yet... When we hear them spoken, it's as if they echo back and forth across Abraham's life. 
with every adjective placed on the back of his son, we feel the heaviness of this test. This was his son. His precious son. The one that he and Sarah had been waiting for for all of their lives. The one whose very life for so many years seemed so far to them as the stars in the sky. This was Isaac. The baby they loved and whose laughter reminded them of God's faithfulness. And God asked for him. There could never be a more difficult task, a more difficult test for Abraham. It pulled his heart in every direction. Abraham was a rich man. He had many servants. He had land. Uh, he, had, he had money. He had everything that he needed, but he would have given it all away. It meant seeing Isaac grow to a full adult life that was faithful and good. But Abraham's love for Isaac wasn't the only thing that was difficult about this test. Isaac was not only the son that Abraham cherished, he was the son who was promised. Up until chapter 21 of the book of Genesis, we have been waiting for Isaac. Up until this point, Abraham's life has basically been a series of lessons discovering that Isaac was the one through whom God was going to be working. It was Isaac, not his nephew Lot. It was Isaac, not his servant. It was Isaac, not Ishmael, who was the son of God's promise. So if Isaac is sacrificed, how will God fulfill his promise? How will God begin to fix what was broken by humanity? The Bible doesn't record what Abraham said back to God. His actions speak loud enough. He got up early in the morning and he set out to do what he had been asked by God. He placed a saddle on his donkey, selected two of his young servants to come with him, and he prepared the wood for the burnt offering himself. Preparations were a sort of calm for Abraham. He didn't say anything throughout this whole time. He just goes about his business in silence. Maybe in the silence of the early morning, he could ready himself for the hardest trip he would ever have to take in his life. After he had prepared all that was needed for the burnt offering, Abraham went toward Moriah with his two servants and his son Isaac. No one says anything on the way to Moriah. It's as if time is suspended in silence until finally Abraham lifts his eyes to see the place from a distance. He gets off the donkey and hands the animal to the two servants. And he tells the young men to stay there until they return. And from this point on, from here to the end, it will just be Abraham and his son. Abraham takes everything they need for the sacrifice. He takes the knife in his hand and places the wood on Isaac, his son. This is the fourth time the storyteller reminds us of Isaac's place in Abraham's life. This is his son. And if it weren't purposeful, it would be redundant. But at every turn, every step we take toward this mountain, the storyteller will never let us forget the gravity of this test. This is painful. This is his son. This is Isaac. In every instance, the intimate relationship between Abraham and Isaac will be right before us. And then Isaac asks Abraham a question. 
Papi, how's the gas? He was Spanish. <laughs> yes, mijo? Abraham answered. I know that we brought everything for the offering. We have wood and matches for the fire, and you have your knife. But where is the lamb that we are sacrificing? Isaac had been on this trip before. He had seen Abraham build altars and offer sacrifices to God, but in all of those other instances, they always brought the animal with them. Abraham responds to his son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Abraham doesn't say much in this whole story. Yet every time he speaks, it is a verbal expression of his faith. Whether it is here in his words to Isaac, or whether it is in the words that he says to his two servants, I and the boy will return to you after we have gone to worship. Abraham is testifying to his belief. No matter what happens on the altar, Abraham believes that God will not break from his promise, and he will provide. It might very well be his son. God will provide for himself the lamb, you, my son. But regardless of what will take place, Abraham's words confess that he is clinging to God's promise. He can do whatever God asks him to do because his God is the God who provides. Just like he provided Isaac, the Lord is the God who provides. After a short little while, they came together to the spot which God had told him. And Abraham gathered a few stones and laid the wood on them. There were no words between Abraham and his son. Abraham's earlier words, it seems, had been enough. The Lord is the God who provides. Abraham took his son Isaac and bound his hands and his feet. The Lord is the God who provides. Abraham laid his son on the altar. The Lord is the God who provides. Then Abraham lifted the knife to offer his son as a sacrifice. The Lord is the God who provides. Abraham, Abraham! Here I am. Your servant is here. And I am listening. The angel of the Lord appeared from heaven and said to him, Do not lay a hand on, your, on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Look at verse 13. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham named the place the Lord will provide. So that any time any of his descendants, his future descendants, came to this mountain, they would know that here the Lord provided. And he would. Many generations later, this place, this mountain, would be the same mountain that Abraham's descendants would stand and hear from God. Moses would give them the law, the covenant, and they would be reminded that this was the place where God provided. If Abraham's faith is a model, what observations can we make about its nature? In many ways, Abraham's faith is a simple faith. 
It is a faith that is ready and willing to hear God's word and obey it. Abraham's faith hears God's word and says, Here am I. Speak, for I am listening and ready to go wherever you lead. And if Abraham's faith is to serve as a model for you and I, then we have to notice the willingness that he has to go wherever God leads. And that same willingness to go wherever God leads is a dangerous one. That's a difficult one. God speaks to Abraham in verse 2, and for the rest of the narrative is silent. Yet he stood before God and he said, I am here. I will trust you and I will go wherever you lead. All Abraham was, had was a covenant promise and a command to go. That's all he had from God. He didn't have anything else according to these scriptures. And yet that was enough for Abraham. It was enough to allow Abraham to put his cherished son and all the hope that he had for the future in God's hands. How could he do that? What was it about his faith that enabled him to trust God in this way? To have this kind of simple faith? Abraham was, to, was able to do whatever God asked him to do because he understood who God was. It was more important that the content of his faith was this very God who had revealed himself to Abraham. After so many years on his journey with God, Abraham knew at least two things to be true. The first was this. God is a covenant-making God, and He makes promises to bless those who fear Him, those who have a relationship with Him. And the second was this. God keeps His promises, and His provision is proof of, the, of that reality. God keeps His promises, and His provision is proof of that reality. Abraham knew that. Every time he looked into Isaac's eyes, he knew that. What enabled Abraham to have such tremendous faith wasn't based on who he was, but who God was. When you believe God, when you know that he is for you and will bless his people, you can walk wherever he tells you to go, even when you can't see where that might be. Abraham didn't know how God was going to do it. Abraham didn't know how long or how far he needed to go, but he knew that somehow, some way, God was going to provide a miracle to keep Isaac's life. That's what's so remarkable about the declaration to his servants. We are going to return back to you after we have worshipped. Abraham believed God. He trusted him and knew that God would fulfill his promise through Isaac, as he had said to Abraham so many times throughout his life. Look at verse 15. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived there in Beersheba. That's the southernmost part of the land that would become the land of his descendants. It is proof that God is already beginning the work that he set out to do through Abraham. 
I will surely bless you and multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. For now, Abraham only had a son. And the assurance that God provides and will continue to provide until his promises have been fulfilled. Abraham had Isaac as proof that God was faithful and would provide for the fulfillment of his promises. But you and I have something more sure. Many, many years after this, after this story, another son was born. And with him was the renewed hope that the God who makes covenant promises was going to fix the brokenness of the world. He was his father's son, his beloved son. And even before time began, the father and his son were of one accord. So the son carried a wooden cross up the mountain. They had agreed that on this mountain, God would provide a lamb for the burnt offering. For the atonement. The perfect son, who was without sin and without blemish, was to be the lamb in our place. For our sin, he took our shame so that we might receive the blessing of being named children of God. Because of his love, the father did not withhold his son. And the Son, for the joy set before Him, willingly gave His life so that we might have life, life everlasting. On that mountain, for all eternity, it would be said, the Lord has provided. He is faithful and He is good. Abraham had Isaac as proof that God was faithful. But we have Jesus, proof that God is faithful and true. This is the God we place our faith in. This is the God on whom our faith is found. And it is because of our faithful God that you and I can become faithful people. With our eyes fixed on Jesus, our risen Savior, we can say to God, I am here. I will go wherever you lead. Because you are my faithful God. And you always keep your promises. In this way, the model of authentic faith is quite simple. It is the disposition to stand before God with our arms lifted high in worship, saying, Lord, I am yours, and I will go wherever you lead me. And when our arms grow weary, and our voices are not as loud or as confident as they once were, we look to the God who provides and ask him to help us once again. See, this is the mystery of faith. It is a receiving of what God has already offered to us. It is a receiving of what God is doing for us. This trying to stand before God, but recognizing that even as we stand, it is by God's grace that He is holding us up. So when God calls on you, shaky as your faith might be, you stand and say, I am here. Lord, help me to go wherever you will lead me. And you call me to reject sin to leave the old country of sin and shame, I will say, I am here. I will go wherever you lead me because I know that you are faithful and that you will provide the strength that I need. My resolve might be weak. My commitment to righteousness may be failing. But I know that God is faithful and I will stand on his faithfulness. He who started a good work in you will see it to completion. He is working in me. He is working in you. And when you feel as though you cannot resist, remember that God is faithful. 
He has already provided for you. And the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. I encourage you. Resist sin. Open your arms and say, I am here and I will go wherever you lead by the strength that you provide. When God calls you back to him, after you've resisted his work, after you've ignored his tug for days, weeks, months, and possibly even years for some of us, I ask you to hear God's voice once again. Say, Lord, I am here. I will come back to you because you are the God who provides and you will provide the restoration and the forgiveness that I need. The Lamb has already come. His blood has already paid for your sin. All you have to do is say, Lord, I am here. I will receive what you have already accomplished. But church, our call from God is not just as individuals. To be sure, God is working in each of us. He is ministering to us now in ways that I will never know. But God's work isn't just a private work. He is calling us, Good News Bible Church, to become a faithful people who will say to God, We are here, and we will go wherever you lead us. If you have a bulletin in front of you, I want you to turn to the back to our vision statement. If you don't have one, I want you to share with someone next to you so that we can read this statement together. Would you read it with me? We seek to be a diverse family of believers, reconciled by God, impacting the lives of people in the Logan Square and Humboldt Park communities and beyond through the gospel of Jesus Christ, accomplished as we see every person connected, discipled, transformed and on mission. Church, this is our calling. But we aren't there yet. This is our aim, but it isn't where we are today. Our call is to impact the lives of those who live around us here in the Logan Square and Humble Park communities. We, all of us, every person has been called to be on mission. Can we say, Lord, we are here and we will go wherever you lead. I think it's going to take some work. I think it's going to take some honesty, some brokenness to be able to acknowledge the ways in which we need to be on mission for God. We need to be able to say to the Lord, Lord, we are here, we are willing, and sometimes we don't know what we're doing. Sometimes we don't have the words to say. Sometimes we don't have the courage to share your good news. But Lord, we are here, and we know that you provide for us all that we need to be your people on mission, transformed to be able to impact others with the goodness of your gospel. It is a response that says, God, when you call me to open my heart and my home and our church to those who do not love you, but desperately need you, Lord, we will say, Lord, we are here. And we will go wherever you lead. And you will provide us the love and compassion that we need. Because we believe that, because we believe God, we will love those who are not like us, who do not stand for the same values as us. We will go where we cannot see, a place that is safe, not because we control the outcome, but safe because it is a place that God has led us to.
long as we are there, we are there with our God. Brothers and sisters, real faith, not the imitation, willingly responds to God and says, I am here, and I will go wherever you lead, because I believe you, my God. Let's pray.